Hello and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd and I'm delighted to be joined by a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Clive Lewis, who works at Patworth Hospital. Uh, Clive is an expert in advanced heart failure management as well as grown-up congenital heart disease and is giving a talk at the British Cardiovascular Society meeting in Manchester all about advanced heart failure and mechanical support for coronary artery disease. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Clive. Thank you, James. Pleasure to be here. Clive, perhaps we can just start by you explaining to the audience what we mean by shock and when we might use uh, mechanical support devices, particularly around uh, PCI and MI. So shock is a term that probably we'd recognize if we were at the end of the bed. And part of the problem with that is that actually the definitions are not exact. And it depends on which paper you read, which uh, consensus document you read. But effectively, you have a clinical scenario of someone who has the effect of hypoperfusion. So that may be a clinical effect, uh, low urine output. They may have low blood pressure. And generally, there seems to be a consensus around a, a systolic pressure less than 90 as being a definition of shock. And usefully, some of the definitions include right heart catheter measurements. So in reality, of course, uh, a lot of people won't do those these days. Uh, there's been, um, however, a move in the advanced heart failure community to continue to use right heart catheter data. Uh, and so you would look at a low cardiac index and high intracardiac filling pressures to define it. And some of the better constructed trials actually use those hemodynamic measurements, but it means that it's hard then to translate that into everyday practice. And let's stick to, to post-MI shock for a while. Is it, is it common, Clive? How often do we see this in, in clinical practice? Well, it seems to be increasing, and whether that's because of the definitions and better reporting, but traditionally it was always said somewhere between 6 and 8% of patients have shock in a post-STEMI position. But now the data tends to say around 10 to 12% of patients have shock. So it is increasing, and with that, a high mortality. So once you've tried inotropes, Clive, and the patient continues to exhibit signs of shock. Uh, what's the traditional first line uh, mechanical dice that you might consider? So traditionally we would consider using an intraortic balloon pump. It's been in the guidance for many years. We celebrate 50 years of the first use of balloon by Kantrovitz. Uh, and it's very fitting that uh, it coincides with 50 years of tr uh, successful heart transplantation because he did one of the early transplants as well. The balloon pump has been studied uh, well over uh, that 50-year period, but actually the results are perhaps disappointing in that they don't come up with uh, firm support to suggest that the intraortic balloon pump actually delivers the degree of support that we would wish. And I think when you consider that the maximum increase in cardiac power that you're going to get is somewhere between half and one litre uh, per minute, then you can begin to understand perhaps why it can't deliver the extra additional hemodynamic support in many patients to break the cycle. It clearly does have some role. It has a role in patients with mechanical complications after a myocardial infarction. And we have often found subjectively that it has a place in the management of patients with sick heart failure, particularly when combined with low-dose inotrope. The SHOCK2 trial was the definitive trial that actually said that the 
bloom pump was uh, did not improve mortality looking out to 30 days um, and I think that people have taken that really as uh, the primary result to say that we should then downgrade the use of a balloon pump in the ESC guidelines certainly from 2014 which downgraded to a level of uh, harm level three and that's particularly based on a number of meta-analyses that were performed in more recent years there have been a number of different meta-analyses but they've all consistently shown that whilst there's no improvement in mortality there's a significant morbidity associated with using balloons uh, in particular stroke and bleeding uh, but unfortunately these are complications of every percutaneous support device that we have uh, the balloon generally is perceived to be easy to implant with low risk of complication and I suspect that we'll find as the literature evolves in this field that all of these pumps uh, will have similar uh, problems and, and uh, uh, difficulties that we face with them. And after a balloon or instead of a balloon, what, uh, what else do the guidelines suggest in a, in a shocked post-MI patient? So the, the, the summary answer is that you can use any form of percutaneous support device which you think could be carefully selected for the right patient. But what the guidelines don't tell us is what the indications are, which device that we should use, in which patient and for how long. Uh, and you know, there is some guidance to help support us. We have um, the impeller device and the impeller has three particular versions, a 2.5 litre flow, 5 litre flow and the CP which is surgically implanted. Uh, and this is a device that sits in the left ventricle, is that correct? Yes, so the device itself has a foot which uh, uh, is placed in the left ventricle abutting the apex and the blood is sucked in through uh, the device and then ejected after being pumped through into the aorta. It provides somewhere between uh, two and four and a half litre flow depending on the device that's chosen. And perhaps some of the problems with the literature is that the 2.5 litre flow pump has been used quite extensively in some of the studies. And as a principle, I think our practice is to believe that full restoration of circulation and flow means that you get good end organ perfusion. And if you want to, again, break the cycle of cardiogenic shock, then the best way to achieve that is by using the maximum power that you can achieve. So I can understand why perhaps studies using the Impeller 2.5 um, uh, may not give us the results that we expect to see. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there is lots of good evidence to say that the impeller unloads the left ventricle. And that's really key to this because the other devices don't do it, whether you're talking about a balloon pump or whether you're talking about some of the other, other alternatives, uh, as we'll come on to discuss ECMO. Um, but impeller does unload the LV. It reduces the wall stress. It improves oxygen um, provision to the myocardium. And therefore, you truly break the shock whilst providing additional power uh, in cardiac power our index so that the end organ perfusion is good and will recover. So that's exactly, it, it, it ticks all the boxes that Kantrovitz set out in 1968 for what we would want to achieve through percutaneous mechanical support. So uh, the principles behind it are absolutely there. Um, but nonetheless, we know that the trial data has not supported um, a, a good result for impeller. What it shows is that um, it improves cardiac index, it improves mean arterial pressure, it reduces the wedge pressure, it improves lactate, and so organ perfusion is improved. But there's no mortality benefit. And when you look at 30 days, 90 days, uh, then we don't see a, a long-term uh, mortality benefit. And there have been a number of meta-analyses which, again, compare balloon pump uh, together with impeller and again the results are neutral in the, in, in, and there's uh, no favour towards 
behaviour, either device. So again, leading us to suggest it's not that it's not doing any good, it's just that we haven't proven yet that that device uh, will improve mortality. Uh, and it's like with all of these devices, it, you have to, uh, to go back to why are you putting it in, what do you want to achieve, and saying you've taken a patient who is critically unwell in shock and you can potentially reverse the shock, now you've got to, to concentrate on what do you do next with them and move them on to either recovery because particularly in the post-MI setting that often you'll get that myocardial recovery within 24, 48 hours and enable you to remove whatever device there so you're aiming for recovery um, or moving on to a more definitive kind of therapy, uh, a longer duration uh, ventricular assist support of some sort whether it's surgically implanted uh, or whether you're considering other forms of advanced heart failure therapy, uh, durable LVAD implantation, uh, or indeed heart transplantation in, in the right selected group. So it's always about what happens next that, you, you, that will then be the key to determining how to treat the patient beyond that. Yeah, so it's a way of thinking not just over the next hour, what am I going to do? It's, a, it's yeah. what's in the patient's best interest over the next few months and years, hopefully. And we, we call that bridge to decision often, and it gives you that time to be able to think, what do we do next? Yeah. And you mentioned briefly ECMO. What does ECMO stand for, Clive, and, and when might we use that? So we would correctly term it veno-arterial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in this case because we're providing um, biventricular support. Uh, we're taking blood from the venous system and we'll often, in an emergency situation, use the femoral vein uh, and often a long pipe that will go up towards or in the uh, right atrium to remove the venous blood and uh, using a, uh, an external uh, pump, return through an oxygenator to the femoral artery with the cannula sitting uh, in the lower aorta. And through that, you're providing biventricular support with oxygenation to support the lung and often the facility to, for example, add in hemofiltration through the circuit as well. So you can provide a more sort of holistic support for a patient who's in critical cardiogenic shock. And the typical point where we would use ECMO in an emergent situation is perhaps in the cath lab when the patient is in cardiac arrest. It's quick and easy to instigate with the right team. But the team is so important, and actually in these critical patients, having a heart team or a shock team uh, is really one way of trying to bring all the right heads together into a room, whether it's virtual or physical, and to be able to understand what is the best treatment for that patient at that time. Uh, and ECMO is good in many ways because it provides good biventricular support for the uh, critically ill patient, but it has its problems. It doesn't unload the LV, and unlike the impeller, and so with the increase in intracardiac filling pressure that you get with that and an increase in the LV-EDP leading to pulmonary edema often, you have to be very mindful that if the pulmonary edema isn't quickly clearing that you need to somehow unload the LV. And traditionally in a surgical unit we may use a thoracotomy and uh, an LV vent to do that surgically. Uh, there are other ways of, of doing it. Uh, some people will do an atrial septostomy, particularly in children in the adult era. Balloon may provide some additional support and we would use that routinely um, but actually the impeller may have a place there too because you have the, the uh, additional benefit of treating both ventricles through ECMO but unloading the LV and some people call that ECMELA, the combination of ECMO with the impeller device as well. Brilliant and um, are there any other techniques that uh, the, the, the listeners should be aware of Clive? 
So we do have a, a device called the Tandem Heart. Um, we don't use that very widely in the UK, but in North America it's used quite widely. And it's a similar approach to uh, offload the left ventricle through the venous system with a septostomy and with then the, uh, the inflow cannula actually sitting in the left atrium. So you effectively offload the left heart. And in some big advanced heart failure centers in the US, that would be the cardiologist, the heart failure cardiologist, in fact, who uh, comes in in the middle of the night to put these devices in. Perhaps that's why it hasn't quite caught on in the UK yet. <laughs> With fewer cardiologists around to staff that roster. Here. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, of course, we do have some percutaneous right ventricular support uh, devices as well. There are, there are two main ones that are used. There's the Impeller RP device. Uh, again, a similar concept of uh, removing blood from the right ventricle uh, and through the pulmonary valve to then have the outflow cannula sitting in the pulmonary artery and uh, affecting right ventricular support through that. And there's a very similar device that's called the Tandem Heart Protec Duo. And we have experience of using that device at Papworth. And, and it can be very effective as a temporary support for the right side as well. And when you're thinking about strategies and algorithms and trying to unpick a little bit who is the patient that we should be treating and with which device, that leads you to think about whether a patient has just left ventricular failure, whether they have just right ventricular failure, or whether they may have uh, biventricular failure, um, and whether they're stable or unstable. And that really dictates what you do. If you have an unstable patient, you need to do something now. And although you could instigate impeller support in, in reasonable time, and that may be a strategy for some patients, if you're truly critical and in a peri or cardiac arrest situation, then VA ECMO is a straightforward and easy technique to implant at that point. If you've had a degree of stability, but the patient is still in shock, then that's when you can think, well, what best is best for this patient at this time? And uh, a patient who has difficult vascular access, then you may well have to revert to surgical techniques. And uh, we would use the Centromag pump. Uh, you can be put in either the left or the right position. And that's an, an easy, uh, straightforward surgical procedure to uh, effectively support circulation, but it clearly isn't a percutaneous option. Uh, and the impeller is a great option for left-sided support. Tandem heart would go with that too. If it's right-sided, then you've got the two right-sided percutaneous devices. Uh, but again, opting for a surgical implant if the patient is not responding uh, or you have poor vascular access. And if it's biventricular support, then probably you're going to go for ECMO. There are reports of using two percutaneous devices, one for the left side and one for the right, uh, and uh, that will be a potential option. And I think that we'll see that sort of support again evolving in time and that that will be a, a reasonable option for some patients. But uh, actually, ECMO is also pretty easy and pretty cheap. And so it provides a good support. You can run ECMO quite well for probably two to three weeks, um, albeit with those same risks that we see for all the devices, the need for anticoagulation, of course, which then drive, uh, drives many of the problems that we see, whether it's bleeding, whether it's inadequate and therefore thromboembolism and uh, stroke, uh, whether it's complications relating to the heparin over a long period of time and getting hit and the effects of low platelets, which can be a considerable problem with then knowing what you can do to move the patient mm -hmm. on. So all of these devices suffer with, the, with these problems, um, but ECMO is a, is a good tool to stabilize a patient and then enabling you to make 
uh, a decision about what happens next. Having said that, Impella has been using some centres out for some weeks. So if you have a patient who is a potential candidate for transplantation, or you need to stabilise end organ function to allow them to become a better durable LVAD candidate, then actually you could use uh, an impeller in that position to then wait for some weeks to you uh, until your next step occurs. So I think I think the way that it's being approached at the moment will change and will evolve in part because of experience and there clearly is a learning curve for using these devices mm -hmm. and even the initial investigators for impeller did show that and showed significantly improved outcomes for patients where, uh, when the learning curve had been passed through. And I think there's also a learning curve for how the heart team works together, the shock team work together in terms of decision making for the patients. And one of the key things from uh, my perspective uh, on my heart transplant had is to think about is the patient you're going to treat with a very aggressive therapy going to be eligible for your advanced heart failure therapies? And it, that can be very difficult when you're faced with a patient who's come in through the primary PCI route. You don't know any of their background. You don't have access to GP records. And later we discover that there's a, a factor which may seem irrelevant at the time, but actually is a key determinant in understanding is that patient suitable to go on to consider other forms of advanced heart failure therapy. You know, and diabetes would be an easy, uh, easy example. And uh, sometimes the GP summary care record is very insightful for things that uh, the referring cardiologists just are not aware of. And frankly not interested in, but actually are very important to determine eligibility for other, other heart failure therapies. And I think in the UK environment, we also have a regulatory and a commissioning environment, which means that there's a challenge in how we evolve the use of these devices. And I think it's quite right that we should use these devices to support and bridge patients who will be eligible for other advanced heart failure therapies, without doubt and also to support those patients where there's a really a good expectation that the patient could recover. But I think if you've got a patient with other comorbidities, then actually it's very difficult at the moment to justify in the UK environment whether those patients would be funded. In fact, they, they probably would not be. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Clive, for a fantastic discussion about these devices. What I'll do is put in the show notes of the podcast uh, some recent review articles that we published in Heart. Uh, so people can go away and uh, read more about them. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.